This is Gil Manser welcoming you to a time of trysts and love nests on Word by Word Conversations with Writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I'm not going to give away a secret when I say that the woman who is the object of desire is Jack London's wife, Charmian. Her story is shared with the world in Rebecca Rosenberg's novel, The Secret Life of Mrs. London. A familiar guest on Word by Word, Rebecca Rosenberg is the author of the photo book Lavender Fields of America and historical novels about strong women. Rebecca, welcome back to Word by Word. Thank you. I got very excited to come here and talk to you about it because I don't get to talk to people about my book. They just read my book, you know, and maybe comment, but it's a lot of fun to talk about. Good. Well, it's the process that you've been through, which is so important to understand because these don't just, you know, appear. No, they don't. No, they don't. (laughs) Uh, Before we talk about Charmian London, if it's not too difficult, could you share with our listeners well, how the October wildfires have impacted your life. Okay. It's been a very crazy time because in September, we sold our 20-year-old business called Sonoma Lavender, which is a national lavender manufacturing business located here in Santa Rosa, California. And then one month later, the entire lavender farm and our barn and our house was destroyed along with 6,000 other homes here in Northern California. So very crazy, traumatic time for everybody here. So, and ironically, uh, Jack London's dream home was destroyed back then, way back then in uh, 1913, And I thought at the time when I was writing the novel, I said, that's impossible. How could his stone home, it was a giant 20,000-square-foot home, be destroyed by spontaneous combustion? And so in the novel, I I allude to that, that it's pretty hard to believe that that could happen. And then what happens? It happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and we were the first, one of the first homes down, and our house was brick and stone and tile, mm-hmm. not wood. So it can happen. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Wolf House is that, you know, the ruins are still there at the Jack London State Park. And when you go and see it, what they had done, and one big mistake is they'd taken the bark off of the redwood beams, you know, pillars that they were using. So it could catch fire. And I don't know if they soaked it with linseed oil, like people said, but it's possible, yeah. But also, well, there obviously. were several people who, and groups who thought London was a fat cat that needed to be taken down a peg. Exactly. Well, Charmian says in her book about Jack London, she says we never knew who torched the house, mm-hmm. so she felt someone torched it right. for sure, and right. it could have been the socialists who thought Jack London was getting way too big for his britches, or it could there was a disgruntled foreman mm-hmm. there that could have done it, or it could have been whoever. It could the have fired been pig farmer. I've heard too. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you've done your homework. Well, we've had a lot of uh, books about. Mr. London and Mrs. London come across here. so yeah, But really, they did do studies um, later at the park, and they determined that it was spontaneous combustion. And I guess, really, we just experienced that in a way. So I can understand that. Well, there's a famous, uh, you know, uh, illusionist, Mr. Houdini, who would make 
just snap his fingers and there'd be a fire. So <laughs> That's true. You never know, right? There you go. So tell me, how did you decide on Charmian London? I mean, I, th- I always thought she was a fascinating figure. I think many people don't know she was Jack's second wife, yeah. at least legally. And <clears throat> um, so why Charmian? Well, I lived across from Jack London Park for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so I would hike all over that thousand-acre ranch there and just marvel at the beauty of it and then go in Happy Walls, which is the museum there, mm-hmm. and find out that they had built a boat together, like a 43-foot catch, the and snark. sailed the yeah. snark. And they had sailed the world, and they had all these photographs that Jack had taken, these magnificent photographs. And so I found out that he's a photographer. She's a photographer. She was so multi-talented. It was crazy. She was a horsewoman, champion horsewoman, Mm -hmm. a concert pianist, Mm -hmm. a singer, Mm -hmm. an entertainer of that sort. And she um, wrote her own books as well. Right. And then I found out that she, the way that they worked together is Jack would tell her his stories and she would type them up as he spoke. Hmm. And that just really moved me. And then I did read the biography that Charmian London wrote about Jack and found out that she did character sketches for him. And she would do descriptions for him because he didn't like to do descriptions often, (laughs) like of scenery and, you know, the different characters and what they were wearing and things. She would do that. And she would always correct his grammar and how things were used. She was his editor. So not only typist, but editor. And she would be his sounding board. And I just got totally enthralled with Charmian and Jack London. I mean, he had to have been one of the most, and I mean this, one of the most unusual, phenomenal men that have lived Mm -hmm. in, in that time period, for sure. Well, they've compared him in popularity to maybe Stephen King today or someone like that. There you go. Every single thing he writes is, you know, sold. Well, that is a really good analogy. I hadn't thought of that before. But, you know, Jack London wrote 50 books in 15 years. Mm -hmm. So he was so prolific. And the books, once I started reading them, I just was amazed at the breadth of knowledge that he had. He could write the books that are adventure, so White Fang and uh, Call of the Wild and Sea Wolf and all that kind of boy adventure. That's what I thought he was, you know, he is known for that, but that's what I thought he wrote. And then I would read these very sophisticated books that are like Martin Eden, which is a poor sailor who dreams of being a literary icon. Well, I wonder who that was. I wonder, yeah. <laughs> and then my favorite book of all time is Valley of the Moon because Sonoma is mm-hmm. named Valley of the Moon. And they were and that was clearly the story of Jack and Charmian coming up and finding this paradise and changing their life from the urban workaday world where he was, you know, now I'm going back, I'm going back and forth between his fiction and his life, because really every book he wrote was from his own experience. Mm -hmm. So he was an oyster pirate on the San Francisco Bay. And I read in the thing in the newspaper, they did a story 
on the Sonoma, um, you know, Press Democrat um, last Sunday called Charmian Secrets, a very nice feature about your book and what you were doing. And somewhere in there it says, questions whether he was an oyster pirate. I thought there was no oh. doubt. I thought he wrote about being an oyster I pirate. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that, but it, he was an oyster pirate. That's what I thought. Yeah. In Which every meant history. That in the nighttime, he would go out on a skiff and cut the lines and take the oyster. The, you, you, <laughs> yes, uh, sir. You drop things down in the water, and then the oysters. In other words, he was a thief. He was a thief. He's an oyster thief. Yes. <laughs> pirate is a nice yes, way of saying that's that. That's right. And then he worked in the cannery. Well, he also became a, um, a catcher of oyster pirates. He became hired as a... Oh, well, you know something I oh, really? I yeah. don't remember. No, he went to work for several months as the... I know how to find him because oh, I did it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So. so he was a pretty amazing character himself. And I was really enamored with his work once I started reading all of his books. Mm -hmm. And even one that shocked me to death was the John Barleycorn. Really? Yeah. Because that is his memoir of being an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Like, who wants to read that? That doesn't sound like that would be very interesting. I found it fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that it, my favorite part is where he says he drinks until he sees pink elephants. Mm. Sounds like Walt Disney, doesn't it? And wow. Dumbo, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really crazy. And that that ties in with Houdini a little bit, too. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that in okay. a little bit. So <laughs> we've got we've got a young married couple who are completely besotted with each other, and she quickly becomes his uh, editor, uh, to be polite, co-writer, really. Muse and editor and typist and manager and the person who helped him not be depressed because he got depressed a lot, mm -hmm. and he had a lot of health problems. Right. And they're, they, now, go he ahead. was treated for syphilis with mercury salts. Whoa, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's been, yes, he's been through a lot. And so there are hints. You asked me earlier if he, if they had an open marriage. Right. In, of course, in Charmian's book and in her letters, she doesn't really say those words. But she was raised, as you know, by a free lover. In fact, she was raised by a triad, mm -hmm. an aunt and two uncles. Right. So she was raised to think that that was cool and that's Polyamory how you had to be. was just the way it was. That's the way it is. Right. And people, including Jack, really adored her because she was this free-loving bohemian woman. But I discovered a tone in her, in her book from um, – that she wrote about Jack London, that she wanted, to, I think, she wanted to be one and only with Jack. But he always tested the waters with that, and they sparred about that. As they did with many philosophical issues, they sparred almost like you're boxing, which is how I start the book. Those two actually boxed each other physically, and they boxed each other all the time with philosophy and what they were going to do. And and it was a very positive kind of boxing. You know, that's that what uh, Jack found so challenging and exactly. interesting and exciting. Was exactly. To have a female she, who was his equal. Exactly. They called each other mate. Right. They didn't call each other honey, sweetheart. You know, they called each other mate. And that didn't mean like a mate on a ship. Yeah, it does. Well, I think it does in that way. At first, I didn't understand what mate 
meant. Okay. You know, it's, I felt like it was, well, he's my mate, like um, my Tarzan husband. Tarzan and Jane kind of mate? Yeah. Yeah. Tarzan and Jane. But it doesn't mean that at all. It means more like you're mate on a ship. And they sailed a lot together mm-hmm. around the San Francisco Bay and up then the around the world yeah, and right. up the coast. So yeah. they were mates. Comrades. They also called each other comrades. They were both socialists. Right. So it was that kind of relationship, best friends, best friends and sparring buddies. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm back to the question. So what appeals to you? What strikes a chord with you about about Charmian? I felt that her voice hadn't been heard and that this book that she wrote – called Jack London mm-hmm. hasn't been read by very many people. I It probably is out of print because when I try to find it, I have to really dig and dig. Mm-hmm. By the way, all of my research materials were, of course, lost in the fire with everything else. So I have had to rebuy all my materials. Right. <laughs> and um, I treasure them. But Amazon them. will track one down for you. There, or, or you, can find, yeah. you can find yeah. one somewhere. But there, it's really quite interesting. But she, no, so I felt her voice hadn't been heard, and I thought her story about Jack was really different than um, and more personal and more real and right. more intimate right. and more juicy than any other story. And then, of course, there was Houdini, which you're going to get to we'll get later. But that was interesting when I found that out, and I thought, well, that is an interesting angle. Well, there you um Charmian's collection is is where down in the Huntington, Huntington Library right. in you Pasadena. Used, yeah, and you use that quite a bit. If yeah, your research. All of, first of all, all of the um, biographers of the Londons mm-hmm. have used that, and all of the Houdini biographers have also used that. So it's not like I found that information mm-hmm. firsthand. Mm-hmm. I read it first in in all the biographies. But it is there for safekeeping at the Huntington. So one of the things that your book, The Secret Life of Mrs. London, does that's different is I think it has a, a broader appeal than Jack London by Charmian or Mrs. Yeah. Houdini or you know whatever book, a, a nonfiction book, because people are going to just pick it up for the love story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think and, that, and be and it is that. it is fiction. Historical fiction. It's historical fiction, yeah. So it is not the nonfiction version. And when you're reading nonfiction, it has a whole different feeling. Mm -hmm. You don't know what they're saying. You don't know how they feel about their friends. You don't see what their animals are like. You know, you don't really get that that feeling. So it was a lot of fun to recreate Especially when you come across 16 pages of anecdote. I mean, you know, attachments and references and... Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. But since we live right here next to their beautiful thousand-acre beauty ranch, I could go and sit on the steps that they boxed on mm-hmm. or right around the pond that they swam in or sit on the picnic table watching, you know, um, Wolf House while mm-hmm. I'm writing that. So it was magical. Magical. Now, you've done it in the first person, which is also a a challenge, shall we say, because you then have to maintain someone else's voice throughout. Was that easy to slip into, or 
did you just wake up one morning and, you know, like Jonathan Livingston Siegel, here it is, I'm going to do it? Well, I did two things. First, it is in first person, and it's also in present tense, which is very odd for a historical fiction to be written in present tense. But I think because I could, like I said, go over and really be there and see it happening Mm -hmm. in front of me and feel it, I can go to the pig palace Mm -hmm. and, you know, see that. And I can be everywhere there. So I was experiencing it firsthand. And I felt that it was a first-person thing. Right. right. I enjoyed the first person a lot because every morning when you get up and you're writing by candlelight, that voice, it's her voice that's coming okay. out rather than being uh, so removed So you are channeling a bit. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not channeling Filtering her. Filtering or uh, directing? I'm, I'm imagining, imagining what she, how she would tell that story and what she was feeling. And she was raised in Oakland. Remember. Oakland, yeah. Yeah. So she she talks California. Yeah. Right. Yes. But she was an educated. She has quite a different voice than Bess Houdini because she was educated and in, really intelligent. Did she go to Mills College? Was that it? She did. Yeah. Oh, good for you, Gil. Good. Mills College. And not only that, she ended up being the secretary assistant to the principal of Mills. So she president. was president? Right. Oh, okay. So she was quite um, educated and mm-hmm. working woman. That's a really different woman yes, it in is. 1910. Especially then. Yeah. yeah. 1905, yeah. Well, the other thing that was interesting is her her life track by taking on that role almost said, well, you're going to be, uh, you know, an unmarried spinster. That's a good point. Yeah. But she already had quite a reputation before she got together with Jack. Yeah, well, I'm married to a Mills girl, so I oh, understand that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what's it, what is it about Mills that makes them a little they're very, wild? They're, they um, are able to speak their mind. Okay. Yeah, it's a well, good that's thing. interesting. So Mills College had something to do with her personality. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But see, it's a secluded place to do and try out. You don't have all those crazy men, you know, laughing at you. Okay. You know, like laughing. But she dated a lot she did, yeah. before that. I mean, she when she met Jack, it was um, nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. And shoot, I don't have my little chart with me to figure out how old she was, but she was five years older than him, so I can't figure that out. But she right. was older. She wasn't that well, young when they got so together. He, was, he died when he was 40. He died in. Yeah. Yeah, so this, we can do it. Anyway. Yeah. Right. Old enough <laughs> to know. Not not that young. Not in their 20s. Now, somewhere else, I think it was Jonah Raskin who, who pointed out that um, – they were very careful to put what they put down in writing about their relationship because they didn't want the first wife and children to be coming after them under some, you know, lewd and lascivious action kind of thing. Oh, oh, you mean before they were married? Yes. Okay. And his first wife thought, actually took out a lawsuit mm-hmm. against him mm-hmm. for, was it abandonment? I believe so. And she she accused a different woman 
of having an Somebody affair. Down Anna on the Strunsky. Yes, Anna that's Strunsky, right. who was a scholar and a brilliant woman. Brilliant woman, too. And a writer and had written a book with Jack. And she accused him. lived in him. Atherton, as I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, she didn't know what was going on. So Jack obviously had a lot of women. Throughout all the biographies, you can see that he had a lot of women, a lot of places, too. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a section in her biography about Jack where they're in New York mm-hmm. for business, and he leaves her in a hotel, and he's with Sophie. What's her name? Sophie. She's a reporter. Yes. <laughs> so he stays for days with her and then comes back with a fur coat. So there were things happening. As a, as a, yeah, as this a, is, yeah, this oh, is for you. Sophie Loeb, L-O-E-B. Right, right. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is that the story from that, that I've read somewhere about that trip, is as they traveled around, if you go through New York, you'll see signs, George Washington slept here, George Washington slept here kind of thing. Uh-huh. And Charmian says to Jack, we should get signs that say, Jack London slept here back in California. <laughs> I like that story. So I don't know if that's true. But I it's don't a know. Story. I didn't hear that one. All right. <laughs> I remember where I heard that one. So lots of interesting things. So let's get into the book. Okay. Okay. You want to share any part with us particularly? You want to read or not? Oh, read. Hmm. Would you like me to read? Sure. Okay. I will read. You're going to be doing readings all around, so I hope you're picking out the parts Actually, you really like. I am not. You're not um, reading? Doing readings. I am doing background with slideshows oh. so that people can really get really understand who Jack London was because mm-hmm. when I when the fires happened we moved to Southern California for a while no one knew who Jack London was You're kidding So up here we do because that's our lore and we just live eat and breathe yeah. Jack London but they no one knew who he was. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do my presentations to give slides and show that Jack London was the most popular, most famous author of his time, as we talked. Yeah. And Houdini was equally as renowned throughout the world as the great escape artist. So um, people don't really understand that they both started as Poor children who worked for a living for their families. They worked since they were six years old, Mm -hmm. you know, doing delivering milk or setting up um, bowling pins or being a messenger boy or polishing shoes. Can you imagine that time? I can't really that a six-year-old has to work for their family to make the money. And that's who they both were. And then they transformed themselves in the next 10 years into the most famous men that we had in the country. So, Well, that was part of their lure was what they call the Horatio Alger story. I love yeah. Horatio Alger stories. Right. And so this is one of those. But first, so I am going to start with the first scene. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to start as I do every chapter which is with a Jack London quote. Mm -hmm. And um, these are my favorite parts of the book, are his quotes. So, Chapter 1, Beauty Ranch, Glen Ellen, California, September 1915. For her, I accomplished odysseys, scaled mountains, crossed deserts, 
For her I led the hunt, and was forward in battle, and for her, and to her, I sang my songs of the things I had done. All ecstasies of life and rhapsodies of delight have been mine because of her, and here at the end, I can say that I have known no sweeter, deeper madness than to drown in the fragrant glory and forgetfulness of her hair. Mm-hmm. Jack London, the Star Rover. That's another one of my favorite, favorite books. Yeah, of that's his. a book that people don't know where to put in the library shelves. The Star Rover is so metaphysical yeah. and so beautiful and so poetic that you can tell I hope just from read. that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Nothing breathes vigor into a marriage like a boxing match, and it helps to have a stupefied audience to witness the fight. If I can get Jack boxing this morning with his drinking buddies cheering him on, he'll be revved up for a good writing session followed by a grand lolly that will linger in our loins for days. So I pull on muslin bloomers and leather boxing boots from my wardrobe, twist my hair up into a top knot, daub on lavender oil for luck. Our fox terrier raises his head from my bed, his ears perked. I stroke his chest and lift him down, his little heart beating in my palm. Come on, possum. He can't say no to you. Slinging boy-sized boxing gloves over my neck, I cross the hallway to Jack's own sleeping porch, where he sleeps it off after our house guests plied him with martinis at the Glen Ellen Saloon until the wee hours. Possum romps at my heels. Jack still reeks of gin, and his snoring drowns out the jeering blue jays. Rise and shine! I whisk off the plaid blanket, exposing fine muscled legs in red flannel shorts. Jack's not moving. So I lift Possum up and let him lick Jack's face. Time for our match. Charmian, no. It can't be morning. He pulls a feather pillow over his head and Possum nuzzles underneath. Oh, but it is. I throw the pillow to the floor and Possum laps at his cheeks. And a deal is a deal. Jack groans and lifts up on one elbow, holding the dog off with his other hand. I can't do this after last night. You can. I know you can. I take Possum in my arms. Jack's valet, Nikita, enters with a cup of coffee balanced on his upturned palm, dressed as usual in a Hayori jacket and skirted trousers. Kishi Kasai, Mr. Jack. Jack sits up and takes the coffee. My head's too fuzzy for Japanese this morning. Nikita smiles with teeth straight as piano keys. Wake from the death and return to life. Jack grimaces. That's supposed to make me feel better? Nikita bows and leaves, Possum following him for breakfast. The socialists criticize Jack for employing servants, but Nikita is essential to his well-being. He starts Jack's day with platitudes and strong coffee, grants his wildest wishes, and manages our household staff so we can focus on writing. And in the evening, he prepares Jack's cot with philosophy books and farming journals, small and large writing pads, sharpened pencils, and a thermos of martinis, equal splashes of vermouth and olive juice. Together, Nikita and I handle Jack's needs. 
and I pray he will never leave us. I lace on Jack's boxing boots while he slurps his coffee, his ankles swollen. Drinking always kicks up his gout. I was kidding about the boxing, he said. A joke for the crowd. That's his nickname for the bohemian socialist literary folks who worship at his feet. Come to think of it, that's exactly where I happen to be at the moment. Oh, no, you're not getting away with it this time. I knot his laces tighter. Bring me the boxing gloves if I'm not up by eight, you said. Best thing in the world for a hangover, you said. We'll do the drop and grind drill, you said. Jack smirks. I love it when you talk dirty. Come on, champ. Let's give it a go. Our audience awaits. I hoist his arm over my shoulder, staggering under the weight he's gained of late. He limps to the back door. Nakeda and some of the staff have gathered to watch on the back stoop between our separate sleeping porches. Jack's remedy for my chronic insomnia and his late hours. In an apron and calico dress, Jack's sister Eliza washes the window panes, doughy underarm flush swinging with each swipe of her dish towel. Boxing is no good for Jack, she clucks her tongue at me, just brings out the poison in his system all over again. Better in than out, I answer. Lawrence Godfrey Smith, the Australian concert pianist turned eucalyptus broker, and George Sterling, poet king of the Bohemians, follow us out to the porch with coffee mugs. What's all this ballyhoo? Lawrence nudges me in the over-familiar way he's adopted since that time on the beach in Australia. Okay, let's pause. I need to do a break. You are listening to Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest is Rebecca Rosenberg, author of the fascinating, written-in-the-first-person tell-all book, The Secret Life of Mrs. London. Since Harry Houdini is involved, you know there are lots more secrets kept hidden, so stay tuned. Okay, well, the interesting thing about the juxtaposition of the parts you just read, you know, with the quote, from Jack himself, and then the forcefulness with which Charmian gets him up and going to call him on that <clears throat> jest about having a boxing match, uh, it reveals quite a bit about his physical condition, his way, the way he lives, you know, the overindulgence, you know, morning to, to dawn, you know, the next day, um, the fact that he has servants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you learn a lot about both of them Yes. in that opening section. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. <laughs> I haven't read that practically since I proofread it a year ago. <laughs> so did you write the book in, in just chronological order, or how did you do it? Yes. I had um, – originally I started with a magic scene, which is later in the book now. Ah. Because that's where the Houdinis met the London. So I thought, well, that's where the story starts. But I enjoyed um, backing up a little bit and giving the feeling, letting people get to know who Charmian was, like you said. Mm -hmm. She was managing things. So you see in that first segment that Charmian is managing things. Eliza, his sister, runs the ranch. Mm -hmm. And Nikita is their servant that is with them always they didn't live a day without 
servants. So there, it does show you that he needed some managing. Right. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you know, when you read the stories, oh, well, let's go take a ride. Well, they didn't, you know, cool the horses down afterwards. The stable hands took care oh, of Oh, absolutely. You know, let's go use the boat. Well, there's somebody on the boat maintaining <laughs> it. So when they walk and on board. And there's a cook. There's right, a cook. And there, right. are, there are staff. In fact, at one point, they had 500 staff. Really? On the ranch. Now, that I had to check that fact over and over again because I kept thinking, Five? that can't. Well, that, well maybe that's that the was ranch. Seasonal. That's the whole ranch. Was that at harvest? That's Everything, you know, they had grapes, they had um, crops, they had, you know, that they had like a school for kids. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to build a whole utopian world there. And so at one point there were 500 staff. Yeah. Yeah. And they had all the eucalyptus trees, 100,000, 100,000 eucalyptus trees that they planted. He was part of that eucalyptus uh, fiasco. Yes, exactly. The assumption was it would be good firewood, not park and cause uh, chimney fires. Well, they they thought that it would be good building material. Not in Australia. But it was. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, obviously. Oh. So he wasn't the only one that came up with that crazy idea, but he did no, buy no. into Luther it. Luther Burbank yeah, Luther, too, yeah. Yeah, Luther Burbank was his friend, right. and he told him about it. So I he think thought he even got rich. Henry Ford involved in it, as I recall. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, that you know, these were the oh well, we're gonna you know have dinner together. Let's talk about what we're doing. Well, I'm yeah. gonna grow grow eucalyptus, and he says, yeah, and I know yeah. where you can get it, and he's got a broker. And well, blah, as blah, you, blah. it sounds like you know, Jack London was really into farming. The mm-hmm. big love of his life was his farm. His well, yeah. his beauty ranch. That's because he remembered the the times at his uncle's farm. I think it was. When he was young, with fondness, he thought that was the best place to be on the planet. So really, that's what he wrote for, is to make this amazing thousand-acre ranch. Mm. Yeah. But it was too much. It made them— That's uh, one person to take care of every two acres. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. So, okay, so we met the Londons, and we're going to meet the Houdini soon. So tell us about that. He's there back in New York, as I recall. No, actually, they met them in um, two places, San Francisco and Oakland. They met in the, in the West Yeah, Coast? they did. Oh. They did. So um, Houdini was doing his famous um, Chinese water torture chamber escape, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was a big kind of coffin type of thing that was made out of brass and had glass windows. And they would turn Houdini upside down and dip him into the water totally. Yeah, with his, and submerge his, his ankles. With his, with his, his ankles attached. Out of the top. Right. right. And so then they would close that top and seal it, and his feet were sticking out, and he's upside down in the water. Oh, don't forget, he's wrapped in chains. And, and there, so he's, yeah. yeah, so he's completely wrapped in chains and uh, locked up, and he has to get out of that water. So they saw that great show. Jack London had seen it the day before in Oakland with his daughter, mm. and he liked it so much that he wanted Charmian to come see it. So they came and saw the show, and of course, these two men would meet because, again, they're the most some of the most famous men of that era. So there is a famous picture 
of the two of them and a famous picture of the four of them that night that they met afterwards. And they went to a restaurant, had a wonderful time. They had a lot to talk about, even though I feel that they were the same in some ways, they were very opposite in other ways, but they had a lot that they liked to talk about. They talked about boxing. Mm -hmm. They both were into boxing. That was a big thing then. They were into- And physical conditioning. Physical conditioning. And both of them have pictures of themselves in boxing, like stripped to the, you know, from the waist up and boxing and everything. They talked about World War One, and they were on opposite sides of that. So it was before world before America joined World War One. So they talked politics. And Jack, weirdly enough, uh, was for the war. And Houdini was really against the war. He said he'd rather have, you know, a troubled peace or a bad peace than be at war. And Houdini was quite the patriot. And Jack was not a patriot. He was a socialist. So they had a lot to spar about. And Jack liked nothing better than to spar with his buddy. Mm-hmm. So the they got along really well. And they spent a week together and Thanksgiving together. So um, really getting to know each other and wrote to each other then for the next year before the the Londons actually went back to Hawaii. They kept going back to Hawaii in their life because that was their peaceful, happy place where maybe Jack could get some work done without um, being with all the crowd. So we've talked about this crowd that they mm-hmm. had, a bohemian crowd that lived in Carmel, and they would come up and rebel rouse and create havoc and go to um, – What's the great place over in, shoot, I can't think of it, the camp that they would all go to and they would write poetry. That's just men uh, up there in Geyserville. um, No, um, yes, on the Russian River. Yeah, we'll think of that. So they would go there. Bohemian Club. Yeah, there you go, Bohemian Club. I have it in the book. So they would go there and write poetry and plays, just the men, and get crazy drunk for weeks at a time. And and then Charmian would have more work to do besides typing up, so she'd have to fill in the holes. So they wouldn't have had to work so hard had he not been obsessed with this building this ranch, but he was. He mm-hmm. kept buying. It started with 129 acres, and he kept buying parcels and parcels, and they really couldn't. And besides this ranch, 1,000-acre ranch with 500 employees, he um, supported five households, mm-hmm. his ex-wife's, his mother's, and his nursemaid. I don't know if you know I don't that remember story. The nursemaid her one, name no. is Jenny Prentice, and I'll tell you more about her in a second. And the aunt Netta, who is the um, bohe- the free loving aunt of Charmian, he supported her as well. So he had a big nut, and so this meant that he had to keep working, but he wanted to play as hard or harder than he was working. All right. I remember when the uh, earthquake occurred in San Francisco. And he had an opportunity to call his magazine, said, go write about it, and we'll pay you 25 cents a word. He couldn't say no. Charmian says that's ridiculous to have to go there and see all that misery and such, although she took her camera with her. And um, the reason they had to say yes is 25 cents a word was the highest rate of pay he'd ever had. 
Yeah. And which is astounding to think of as well. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were really trying to write all these books for the ranch, to mm-hmm. pay for the ranch mm-hmm. and all the households and everything. Okay, so we've met. Let's. So would you want to go and talk about uh, Houdini? Houdini? Okay, so we so they met, and they were enamored with each other as a foursome. And Charmian writes in her diary, uh, "When they leave, charming Houdini, I shall never forget him." Mm-hmm. And that is the first hint that you have of that she really liked Houdini. So meanwhile, Houdini had been a vaudevillian magician, and he had he had transformed himself from being Eric Weiss. He was born as Eric Weiss in Appleton, Wisconsin. Well, he said that it was Appleton, Wisconsin, but he was really born in Budapest. I don't know if you I knew that. that. Yep. So he's like really transforming himself. And at 20 years old, he calls himself Harry Houdini after his mentor who was um robert Houdin. robert Houdin, yeah. yes and he started performing in new york and he ended up in coney island doing a magic act with his brother and there was the tiny bird-like um, wilhelmina rayner that he just fell head over heels for and they got married two weeks later and she he fired his brother and took up with um, Wilhelmina and renamed her as well. She became Bess Houdini and they traveled the vaudeville circuit for 10 years as Bess and Harry Houdini. Well now tell me why she he changed her name because Bess is not one of the the names I would pick. I don't know. I think I think that Bess is from Wilhelmina. Don't ask me how that Will happens. Will and Bess, maybe, yeah. Could be. I don't know, but I never heard, like, why he changed it to Bess. And she didn't get much billing. Well, she had a, he had a uh, strong relationship with his mother, almost. He did, yeah. yeah. Pathological. Right? Yeah, he did. He was really obsessed with his mother. Yeah. And I don't get into that so much here because I thought it was distracting at that time and his his relationship with his mother was earlier because she died she right. had died by this time but I will tell you that she he told uh, Charmian that he'd like to take her to his grave to to the mother's grave which is in New York and he had rebuilt that grave to be like a monument mm-hmm. and there were a lot of very strange things about his mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But so I left, that was going to be a pilgrimage. Yeah, like yeah. to go see his mother. Mm-hmm. And he did say to her that I, I would have loved to have introduced you to my mother. So I think what he liked about Charmian is the same thing that um, Jack and all the men liked about her is that she was very – like she was a Mills College woman. And she could speak her mind and she could stand her own and she could – uh, she was very free and happy and always made things fun and so talented. So she was very sparkling personality with a lot of intellect behind it. Mm-hmm. So who wouldn't love Charmian? <laughs> Do you know anything about the, the name Charmian, how she got that name? I don't. Because Do I, I have a niece who's named Charmian. Oh, I love that name. And I was told that they named her after Cleopatra's 
um, maid of honor or whatever you call it, you know, the, her, her servant was called Charmian, and it's a classical reference, you know, from the time of Egypt. But I don't know Charmian from anywhere else other than that. No, I don't know. People call her Charmaine, you know, yeah. which isn't correct. But it's in the book I have Aunt Netta saying you pronounce it like charm, Ian, you know, so people could understand how it's pronounced. Right. That makes sense. I do want to say, since we're on an audio program right now, um, that the audio version of this is spectacular. And now my talent, the name of the talent is flying out of my head, but it is spectacular. And people have just been really excited about it. And that was a funny story because she wrote me emails and made me pronounce every single word. I had no idea I had all these words that were not able, that are so impossible to pronounce. So I think Gil's trying to find I'm our talent. She's really, that. she's read a lot of books and I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it's very spectacular. You have to have a long drive. You still living in Southern California? No, we moved to Sonoma. Come Yay. back up. Yeah, good. we're That's here. That's good. Yeah, good, good. And yet we're renting a house where the house below it was burned and the house above it was burned. So <laughs> we're playing roulette, I guess. Elizabeth Rogers. Okay, that's right. Elizabeth See? Rogers. It's at your fingernails. And if you um, look that up, she's really worth listening to. On Amazon, you can hear a segment mm -hmm. of it. So I think you'll really enjoy that. That's cool. All right. Well, did you um, sit in on the audiobook recording? At I all? didn't. No. She's in New York, no. and but she really involved me, you know, by having me um, tell her all those names, historic names, like even Charmian. But how, now in the book, I have so many languages and I didn't realize it until she got hold of that. But I have Hawaiian mm -hmm. and I have, when Charmian goes to New York um, to see Houdini, then she stays with a real person in history named Romani Marie. And so she's a gypsy mm. of, of um, Romanian descent. Right. Yeah. And so I have those kinds of words. And, and when they get to Hawaii, they eat um, Portuguese um, pastries that are good. So there are just so many different little words in there. It's amazing. Oh, then you've got Nikita, their right. faithful servant, is Japanese. Well, he was, so he's, just, yeah, he's speaking Japanese, Japanese also. Mm -hmm. It's very, the book is very exciting from that standpoint, is that it is set in San Francisco, Sonoma. They go to Hawaii. You will find out about the first, I don't know if you know, that Jack London made surfing popular in the U.S., I thought it was Duke who made that popular. Well, maybe, yeah, but, but maybe okay. Duke. What? When was Duke? What? What historically? He was when in was the he? Olympics in '22, so it would have been that. Well, that's afterwards. after yeah. that. So Jack London, I have the article that he wrote for all the newspapers in America, introducing the idea of surfing. And if you want to Google a cool, a really cool snippet from Jack London, Google that surfing. 
from Jack London, and you will find this piece that he wrote for the newspapers there. So he was the first person to really introduce that. And they were there surfing with the natives, Mm -hmm. Charmian and Jack. That was cool. So you really get this whole Hawaiian atmosphere. And then it comes back, and Charmian then goes to New York. So in the winter time, which I have been a lot Mm -hmm. in the winter. Mm -hmm. So you're experiencing Greenwich Village back in 1915, and it's very interesting. And then Houdini, by the way, was the first pilot who flew over Australia. Can really? you believe that? I did not the know fir- that. Now you can Google that, too. All right. <laughs> so he was the first one to fly over Australia, and he had a biplane. So he obviously would have to land for fuel along the way. Yeah, yeah. probably. But that's where it gets to be fiction. <laughs> ah. <laughs> because I don't have them landing. Oh. <laughs> but he takes Charmian on a little trip. A to, short trip. To uh Washington, D.C. Well, there were, at that time, there was no uh, land connection from one side of Australia to the other. No, no, not Australia. Okay, so Did you Houdini, say Australia? I did. I'm sorry. So he did. So Houdini flew in Australia. He was the first one okay. in Australia. Not away from Australia, but in Australia he okay. flew. But in my book, he takes Charmian on a plane ride from New York to Washington, D.C., and it was, it happens to be from a historical, now nobody was flying then, but we apparently had uh, planes called Jennies that mm-hmm. we were getting ready for World War One. And there is a specific place that they were out on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually, so one very interesting part of the book is Houdini was very involved with training our military on how to escape. Did you know that? I did know that, yeah. So that that is in He was one some of, of when I was a kid I read a lot of stuff about Houdini. Yeah, you yeah. can read the biographies and you'll see that that was true. So he right. did a lot of work with the government to make sure that the jails were safe and that's in the book. Mm-hmm. Like he goes over and tests certain jails and and he has fun when he's doing that. He kind of spoofs the guards and everything and helps the um well there were some lawsuits brought against the jailers after he'd visit so he wasn't there just as a you know escape artist kind of thing. no he, he was, was helping also, the yeah. government see yeah. if their jails were safe at and in the book it's at san quentin he does that ah. so he would make it seem like a magic trick for the prisoners and he was really testing the equipment so mm-hmm. he did a lot of kind of undercover things th- throughout the country that it are documented. So that was a lot of fun. People. Yeah. And what I was going to tell you is he, this is true story and it's in the book. He was training military at the Hippodrome Theater in New York. And the Hippodrome was a block long by a block wide in New York City. And he did a magic show there for, I think, four or five years. It could even have been longer. And all the money went to our military effort. He was an amazing um, patriot. He Mm. was really into supporting America and the president. And he would train our military there in handcuff and escape and where to hide things and what to do. And I just think that would be so cool to see him doing that. But Charmian got to see it. So that means you get to see it, dear reader. We're there with her. (laughs) Yeah. 
So the next question is, should we go into the other question yet or not? Sure. Um, have you definitively decided if they are lovers? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know. You mean, did it really happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's in your book. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, not only is it fictionalized here, but they absolutely were lovers. It was an affair, and she was friends with Bess, so that's, to me, very taboo that she's having an affair with Houdini. But I, fe- I feel like she felt like she was so Yeah, but tied Houdini up. has, as I've seen, I don't know, at least a dozen documented lovers. Yeah, so Houdini, but I think that Charmian was his first. So if you want to get some really cool info, background, mm-hmm. it's my friend now, historian um, John Cox, who has for maybe 30 years been writing about Houdini every single day. And I'd say he's the number one um, historian. And you can go to his Wild About Houdini site, and you could Google anything about Houdini. And he has one section that's easy to read um, called The Illicit Loves of Houdini. And you'll see all the possibilities and some that are more documented than others, including Charmian. So that's where you can find the dirt on him. But still, what about poor Bess? But I have an answer for that. Okay. Do you, do you want to tell us the answer, or is that a big well, secret, too? Hmm. 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 Don't give too much away. We have to have people buy the book. Talk <laughs> okay. about it. Right? <laughs> it is. Let me just say that there is something about Bess Houdini that most people don't know that gives you a little bit more feeling like it was okay for Houdini to have his affairs. Now, that sounds weird, but... That's right. Now you have to buy the book. I've got it. That's right. I'm going to have to find that. Now let's talk about get step away from the book. Are you working on your next novel? Yes, I have. I I don't know if you've got your head above ground yet, for that matter. But Uh, well, luckily, luckily, I have written three novels. Mm Besides this, and so it's a matter of... You did one about Betty Doe Tabor. Oh, wow. You have a good memory. Well, Baby Doe Tabor. Baby Doe Tabor, who I was the that. unsinkable Molly Brown, wasn't she? No. No? That was... No, she's not, but she oh. lived in that same era. Okay. Molly Brown was Molly Brown, but this is Baby oh. Doe Tabor. So I've written that one. I can't believe Silver you remember Mine that. Heiress, and then right? yeah. um, it's a silver mining queen, right. and she came at 20 years old, out to Colorado, and her husband abandoned her, and she kept working on this gold mine. And then she met the Silver King, Mm -hmm. who had just struck gold, or I mean, he struck silver after 50, I'm sorry, 25 years of mining. And they fell in love and had an affair because he was married. And it's a rags to riches to rags story. So I've written that, and I've written the sequel to that. But my new – and so I will work, be working on those and finishing those and getting those published. Mm-hmm. And my new novel is Champagne Widows, which is about um, Barbara Nicole Clicquot, mm-hmm. who's Clicquot, Clicquot, you know, Clicquot, Vouve Clicquot wine. Champagne. And right. also Lily Bollinger. Mm-hmm. Of Bollinger Wine, who right. lives 120 years after 
um, Barbara Nicole. So it will be a dual timeline about these two amazing women who went through being a widow, taking over a business when no one wants them to take over a business. They were both in wars. One was the Napoleon Wars and the other was uh, World War II. So they're fascinating. And so that will be my next one. You have to do some travel too. I've been. (laughs) I've been going and I am going again in about three weeks. Now, one of the exciting things that I read about is that you've got – you're not calling them readings. You have presentations. Yeah. Presentations at uh, at different events coming up, and you have a magician yes. accompanying you. So yes. tell us about him. Oh, his name is Frank Balzrak. He's a master magician, and we've been friends for a long time. And when I knew that I wanted to have Houdini mm-hmm. at these presentations, which are going to be more like big parties. Mm. We already have more than 100 at the one in um, Santa Rosa, people coming and 100 down in Sonoma. And my idea is that this should be celebrated and people will read the book. So I wanted them to have that historical background. So I'm showing pictures and talking to them about who these men were, who the women were, and we will have Frank as the magician. We also have little nibbles of Houdini's and Jack London's recipes that they gave the suffragettes to do a cookbook to raise money. You're kidding. So that's really cool. So they have their their favorite recipes, and it's deviled eggs and stuffed, um, Roquefort stuffed celery and things like that. But Jack loved duck. That was his big thing. So we're having a duck gumbo Mm. also. So pretty wild, pretty wild. You have been listening to word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, with today's guest, Rebecca Rosenberg, author of the fascinating written-in-the-first-person tell-all book, The Secret Life of Mrs. London. The studio engineer for today's show has been Anthony Garcia. Station manager is Sean Knight. Radio coordinator, Wendy Nicholson. Podcast archivist, Mark Prell. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next Word by Word show from 4 to 5 on Sunday, April 8th. Do you have some quotes you'd like to have from Mr. Uh, London that you'd like to share as a close? Sure. Mm-hmm. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Jack London. I shall use my time. Thank you.